There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So listen, how's your Christmas shopping going? You haven't started yet, have you? Well, fear not. The big interview is here to help solve all your problems. For the football fans in your life, here's three stocking fillers. Firstly, the documentary film of my book, Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, is now available everywhere on DVD and digital download. Take the Ball, Pass the Ball is the definitive story, we like to say, of the greatest football team ever assembled and features exclusive interviews with Barca's stellar cast of current and ex-players, including that geezer Lionel Messi, Xavi, Andres Iniesta, Thierry Henry, Dani Alves, Gerard Piquet... Carlos Puyol and Sergio Busquets, plus a rare exclusive contribution from Pep Guardiola himself. There, that's that one present sorted. Secondly, my old chum and fellow dandy Jonathan Northcroft has a new book out published by Backpage, these marvellous people that bring you the books, the podcasts. It's called Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, and it's Jonathan's World Cup diary from Russia last summer, and it's essential reading for the football fan in your life. Finally, check out another Backpage book, Football 2.0, How the World's Best Play the Modern Game by Grant Wall. Through extensive interviews with one player in every key position on and off the pitch, Grant breaks down the technical and tactical revolutions which have transformed football. So, there you have it. Take the ball, pass the ball, deadlines and darts with Delhi, Football 2.0. That's not only difficult to say, it's Christmas sorted. Courtesy of your friends at the big interview. Your ho, ho, ho. Welcome. Hi, my name's Finlay. I'm a big interview socio from the Isle of Iona in Scotland. And my favourite interview of season one was Terry Butcher. Not just because he's a great Rangers man, but I got to learn lots of stuff about his earlier career and really just realise how good a player he was before he even signed for Rangers. Keep up the good work and really enjoying all the interviews. Cheers. Terry Butcher, it's good to have you in the city for which you're probably most famous. Town is town, it's not a city. In the town, in the no. Ipswich, Ipswich town, town. Club. But the question that I've got the privilege of asking you, which the world has always wanted to ask, and I think bugs you and asks you everywhere you go, what was your favourite heavy metal concert that you've ever been at? Good question. Yeah. I went to, um, after the 1990 World Cup, I went to the Playhouse in Edinburgh with Iron Maiden and um, well I met them backstage before because I know them very well oh really and um, and then watched the concert and then ended up going on stage and uh, with the roadies and singing a number <laughs> Heaven Can Wait I think it was no way we went on there yeah it was it was just the one word of oh and we went oh 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 and that's so we sang loads of that and then went off again quickly and then went back uh, backstage afterwards and I presented Steve Harris the bass guitarist with one of my World Cup shirts in 1990. So I went to the, obviously living in Ipswich now, near Ipswich now, 
that was where the sort of the basis of heavy metal. I always liked heavy metal before, but Paul Mariner got me onto heavy metal big time, ah. and he introduced me to like Ian Gillan as well. Ah, yeah, like this. classic. We, we we watched a lot of concerts together, me and Mariner. And, um, so episode was a scene where, 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 where it all began, really. Good groups would come and play here. Yeah, good groups would come. I mean, Hawkwind, I don't class them as a good group, but they came and Meatloaf, Saxon, Def Leppards, Kiss, oh. all these sort of groups they came, came along. Yeah, they all came along. It was, it was all part of the circuit, of the British circuit. But so they came along, and it was normally packed and really, really good. So I got a good affinity with, uh, with Iron Maiden. Mark Avery is one of the, one of the guys on the, the management team. Not, not so much the concert... But I got invited, after 1990, I got invited to go to Italy because they were launching one of their albums in Italy and they were playing a football game because they all love the football. Yep. Steve Harris is, a, is an Irons fan, a big West Ham fan. And there's, there's two stories to this because the first one was they asked me to go to, into Europe to play. So they flew me out and Neil Webb out because Neil's a heavy metal man as well and Maris. And we were to play against Alto Bellis and Gentiles and all these people out there yes, please. Um, in, a, in a sort of charity game. Yeah. So we ended up going out there and playing the game. And uh, we won 7-1. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I, I played against Altobelli before yeah. in, in 1985, I think it was, Richard, in, in Mexico, in a friendly. And um, it was nice to play against him again. He hadn't put any weight on and things like this. And the one as well, they were launching another, another album, and they, um, I got the invitation through Mark Avery to fly down to Stansted. And Mark, Steve uh, Harris, the bass guitarist, lives near Stansted Airport. So flew down there. Maris was there as well, Neil Webb, as usual, usual boys. Um, he's got a, Steve Harris has got a recording studio in his grounds, he's got a pub in his grounds, and he's also got uh, a football pitch. So we ended up playing the football game in front of all these, all these black leather fans that were Iron Maiden people. Who, I think the dress of the day was black leather. But anyway, <laughs> we played the game, and it was a great game of football. And I did something that I was always wanted to do in football, my football career, I've only done it once, and I did it that afternoon. I walked off the pitch into the bar of the pub with my football boots on and downed a pint of lager. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. And it was just incredible. We had a great night. So it was, I've got a lot of good memories of the Iron Maiden. This is strange. Having played for the Cobbles Club yeah. and having played in a certain era at Vasco Rangers, there must have been some opportunity to walk off a game and drink a pint straight down before you had to do it with... No, you, know, you never get the chance to do that. But it was just a wonderful occasion. And, you know, obviously with the, with the group playing as well, not members of the group play, but, you know, they're still my favourite group and I always will be. Well, it, those who've had the bad luck to have to listen to my parts of the big interview over the last few months know that I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed by music. Music and football would be up there. Yes. And it, they're things that make life worth living. They make life more fun. They bring out your character and they make me bubble with enthusiasm and also I love creativity I love people who can create music they've, they've got my total respect but the two things I'd like to know is what is it about metal that, that's right for you and were you able to play it in dressing rooms during your career you, because I know the rubbish that they play now oh, I mean were you allowed to metal out some of your dressing rooms or not or no not really no because in that, in that era, I mean, it's only at the, the latter stages of my career when the boombox or the, the, yeah. big, the big machines were coming into the dressing rooms and Wimbledon were the ones down south with Vinnie Jones and everyone else like that. They, they, they got the thing on. And the reason that they did, I think one of the reasons it was said was that it got everybody together rather than chat and talk. You know, it, it gave an atmosphere in the yeah. dressing room. You can understand that. Yeah. But no, I've never been able to do that. And I did threaten every team I've been at. I haven't been there long enough, but every team I've been there, I've always said, I'll, I've said, I'll do my team talk, say my things, and then get out because the music goes on. It's, a, it's an indication that, you know, get out, Gaffer, you're off. You know, the music's on now. 
I said, one day I'm going to play my music on there. But I think... So you'll be the only one left in the dressing room with the players yeah, all well, going? Probably, yeah. I should actually put it on while they're warming up. But the, the, for me, anyway, the thing that gets me going on for a game would be heavy metal. Yeah. You know, like when you're driving in a car and you, yeah. you put on you know, Planet Rock or something like that, you put on your, on your CDs and things like this, it makes me actually put my foot down on the accelerator quicker. So it's not a good thing to drive to, I yeah. feel, because you, 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 you know, you're like, whoosh, and you, you love the speed. Is it the energy of the, of the music? The energy, yeah. yeah. Um, the energy, so... The thing that I had in the 1986 World Cup in particular, because we had cassettes in those days, and other young kids and I were, what on earth were they? But we had cassettes. And I had a cassette of uh, hypnotherapy tapes, and I, I put that on. I would go into the, into the toilet before games, into the cubicles, and sit there and put my headphones on. No one else would do it. There was no music because the warm-ups weren't that controlled, and it was up to you whether you warmed up or not. So I would go in the toilet, put the headphones on, and it was, it was a lovely guy, Doc Lewis, who lives in Felixstone nearby. And he was very, very good with hypnotherapy, and he would take you away to Desert Island. He put stitches in my eye once after a game, and I didn't have any anaesthetic. And I never felt it go in. I just said, well, you're going to start doing the stitches. And he said, no, I've finished. I put three in. I said, you're joking. He said, I never felt a thing, because he rubbed it and took me away to a desert island, mm-hmm. took my mind away. Mm-hmm. So I listened to these tapes, and it was, it was nice music, but... What it would do, it would tell me, well, positive things. Mm-hmm. It would tell me about how to, how to program your mind. Because when you, you go to the games as a player, you get there about 2 o'clock, it's a 3 o'clock kickoff, and you've got sweaty armpits or you feel tired and you know, headaches and all that sort of thing. That's your adrenaline's coming too quick. So mm-hmm. you've got to try and control that. Yeah. And these hypnotherapy tapes did just that. Imagine your body's like a, like a, a big cylinder and it's got bubbly liquid in it, which is your nerves, your anxieties. And the taps are on your fingers and on your toes. So you open the taps up and let it drain away. You see it drain away. And they close the taps, and there's a big tap inside you. See it turned on, and it's filling up with your adrenaline. And this is, this is about 10 to 3. Mm-hmm. It's just filling up your adrenaline. So like, and it's filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up. Now, how do you feel? And you, I was literally breaking doors down to get out onto the pitch because I was ready to go. It was before its time in many ways, but it was really good for me. Well, you see, that without knowing you terrifically well, we did spend some time on the road together where you were a BBC analyst... I mean, particularly in Casablanca with England in 19, the build-up to 98, which we'll come back to. But the little I did know of you, I, I learned very quickly not to categorise you as the, as the player I saw, you know, because you're a man of humour and a man of... You're very open, you're very intelligent, and you haven't surprised you're me... You're talking about me? I am right, talking right. about you. No, this is, this, is, this is the part where we don't joke around for 10 oh, seconds, okay. for 10 seconds or so. But you've still surprised me that you, you were that far ahead and that in an environment because football is an environment where people will take the piss out of you we're doing something you've got to be not only strong physically and as a leader but you've got to be strong about your own self-confidence to do something different and in those days that would have been quite different and this is not an identical example but when we talked to Chris Waddle about the time when when he suffered Depression, where he was very down, he, he said at that stage in football, you couldn't go and talk to people about it because it was seen as a sign of weakness. I'm not saying that listening to hypnotherapy would have been seen as a sign of weakness, but you would have encountered in that era people who just didn't understand it at all. What helped you find that as a useful tool for you and who helped you find it and, and how did other people accept it? Well, it was in 86 when we were out in, in Mexico that I'd sit by the pool with free time because we weren't allowed to sit there that long because it was, it was very hot. But I'd sit by the, and listen to my hypnotherapy tapes and they were, there was all different ones, you know, positives and after games and all this sort of thing. So you'd, I'd sit there listening. And everybody thought I was listening to 
heavy metal because they knew I liked heavy metal. And I just, I was just no. And you'd actually give them to people to listen to. Really, you could, you could share. Yeah, you could share, and oh. they, they loved them. They loved it. They, it was really good. It was good because Doc Lewis used to help with, with children that were wet, wet their beds or had anxiety problems, and, and he would help like that. And I, I gave one to them, a tape to my mum, and she had problems sleeping, and she, she was, she was great after that, and things like that. Wow. So yeah, you probably could say it was some stage ahead, but that was just, just seemed natural to me that. Uh, I, I, I got that and I was able to do that the thing about me was being a little bit different was I'm six foot four I'm not the quickest guy in the world but I was very comfortable on the ball because that was ingrained at Ipswich and with Bobby Robson and Bobby Ferguson Charlie Woods the coaches there they made sure that I had a good feeling of the ball so the ball was my friend it wasn't an enemy and I wasn't a six foot four centre half he would just kick it out of play things like this I was not sure culture I wouldn't say culture but I was I, I could pass the ball yeah and then when Ray Wilkins kept coming back and giving me the ball, I wouldn't give it to him because I could do what Ray Wilkins could do, in all fairness. But I always knew I was a little bit different in many respects as having confidence on the ball, able to pass the ball. It's from that that you sort of think, well, I've tried something different. It seems natural to me. Let's go with it and let's, let's progress it. And I, I took it up to Rangers as well and there, I enjoyed it there as well. And then the music came into the dressing rooms and all different kinds of aspects. And then you're looking at psychologists and all that sort of thing, which didn't really come into effect when I was playing. Bobby Robson had two psychologists that, that were doing a six-month trial at Ipswich many, many years before that. And they, they came to Liverpool to watch the, the game and, and they, they'd been with us for six months. And they obviously became part of the furniture. So Bobby did his pre-match talk at Liverpool in the hotel. And we never won at Liverpool. We drew occasionally, but never won. And Bobby started his team talk with... Uh, Right, lads, when you go a goal down, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> and it's like, if, we're all used to that, but we all knew what Bobby meant. So it wasn't a problem for us, and it wasn't negative for us, but the, you could see the psychologists go, oh my God, <laughs> there's a bit of work to be done here. So psychologists, we just started to come into, into football then. So, yeah, it was, it was part of a, of a real good era in terms of all different kinds of things were happening, not just on the pitch, but off it. Well, I think you could hear the admiration in my voice because I think that... I think we've legitimately in Britain been accused of being a little bit slow to open ourselves up to other techniques and other ideas from which you, you definitely can learn. And I think that there's nothing wrong with our warrior-like psychology throughout the history of European football. British clubs have been very nearly the most successful nation, but we were definitely slow to say that we needed to learn anything from anybody. And therefore, I, you know, I liked hearing that. And I also think that it's difficult to show being different in football because it's a very... It's a very jealous, very small-minded atmosphere sometimes, particularly if things aren't going well. It's, not, it's different now, isn't it? Because you, you've got centre-halves with, with the socks over their knees and they've got earrings and tattoos and big bushy hair and all this sort of thing. It is, if you're different now, it's good. That seems to be, that seems to be the, the, the common thing. In our days, in 20, 30, 40 years ago, you didn't want to be different. You wanted yeah. to be the same. You wanted to be the same thing and, and not stereotyped or pigeonholed. If people told you things like that, you're happy with it. You're happy with that. You know, you're a big stopper centre-half and bang, 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 all this sort of thing. You're happy with that. Not, you know, that you could pass the ball well or you've got a great delivery on you. How many goals do you set up? How many assists did you get? You know, you're not interested in that. You want, you want it to be the norm. I think so. Whereas nowadays, you don't want to be the norm. So that's, that's how much it's changed. We're going to talk about Bobby Robson a lot because you knew him really well. I, he treated me really well in my career and I liked him a lot. So I'd like to talk about him. But he does carry, particularly from his foreign clubs, an idea that maybe one of his biggest characteristic wasn't necessarily tactical brilliance. I still think he was tactically very good, but what Bobby used to do, he'd put you to one side and he was very good at man management. He'd speak to you and say to you about what you've done well, how's the family, because he knew all about your family and what you, what you needed, what you did. 
Because I used to get loans from them. I used to, rather than go to the bank or the building society, I'd knock on the McGaffer's door if I was moving house or things like this. I said, look, you know, is it possible to get a loan? The same rates as the, as the bill. I'd rather give the money to Ipswich Town mm-hmm. than I would to... So we used to get mortgages on my house, things like this, used to come through the club, which was brilliant because obviously tied it to the club. Yeah. But it was great that the, you know, the gaffer would listen to that. And, he, and if, if you ever had a problem, you'd, you'd speak to him. You could do that. He, he wasn't in so much awe of him. He was, he was the gaffer. But he was also your uncle or your granddad. And you'd go and have a chat with him and things like this. But he'd, he'd take you to one side. And he'd, it was always positive with Bobby. It was never negative. It was always really positive. And you know, he was a bit absent-minded with names and things like this. He'd always call me butcher you know, and things like this. But you wanted to do it for him. You know, you had that feeling that he was the gaffer. You know, he was not a god of the club, but... He was, he was somebody that, you know, if you did well for him, you know you got praise. I like to live a little bit. I like to make use of the time we've been given, so I live with a bit of colour and a bit of passion. But I've never been around anybody who was as much in love with life, as, as much fun. And he, I don't know what it was, but when you were near him, he kind of gave off a, a jauntiness and a, and a sense of humour. And that Life wasn't one big, big joke by any means at all, but like you, you felt like he was a guy who could literally cope with anything. And take it in his well, stride to see he, the positive. He had to cope with everything to deal with us because we just <laughs> threw a lot of stuff at him. Don't worry about that. I mean, we used to go to the Ipswich Arms, which was the pub, just after the game on a Saturday. And then they had a paper, local paper called the Green in Ipswich. Yeah. The Pink in Norwich, the Green in Ipswich. And you read the Green in and you read about the game and reports and all that sort of thing. Did the, did, did the guys, the press guys who you knew very well, did they slaughter you? Did they praise you? Whatever. So I'm, I'm in there one day and Mariner's in there. Cause it was about, 10, 11 of the boys would go in there, a few pints and that before going home after the game. It was really good. Because you go in the players' lounge, they're always packed, so you go into the pub. It's really sound, so now gone. So I'm in, I'm in the pub, and uh, Maros had brought Ian Gillen along from Deep, from Deep Purple. So, I mean, he's an absolute superstar. And the next thing I know, I'm reading the green, and the next thing I know, it's on fire. <laughs> Gillen's got a lighter and lit it in the middle of the pub. What do you do? What do you do with the lit paper, the paper that's on fire? What do you do with it? I, I don't know what to do. I, so I, I ran into the bar and they, they, they got a tray of water or something, a jug of water, and put up the water on it. You, know, you, mean, you never poured your beer, that's the main no, thing. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't do that. That was a trap I think you were setting. Oh, setting I mean, that was unbelievable. But I mean, we'd organise nights out and things like this, and days out, but sometimes impromptu. But after games, yeah, we'd, we'd go out normally. There'd be about seven, eight players with the wives and girlfriends go out to restaurants on, on, a, on a Saturday night. Sometimes we meet Sunday lunch down the Centre Spot restaurant, which is one of the restaurants at, at, the, at the ground. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just incredible. It was, it was a buzz because it got you together, but Bobby knew all about that. Was, was he much of a disciplinarian? <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah. He was, he was, quite, he was quite tough. Well, sometimes really? very tough, yeah. Very tough. I mean, he, <laughs> I remember 1990 in the World Cup. There's a great story of where... We've organised a players' night out. This is like four days before the Republic of Ireland game in Sardinia. So we've, me and Chris Woods did a bit of a recce a few days before, found the bar. So he said to Chrissy Waddle, come on, Chrissy Waddle and Gaza, come on, let's go down there for a few drinks. So the word got about, and in the end, it was about nine or ten of us, like John Barnes and Brian Robson and everybody else. Chris Woods was my roommate, so we all went down, organised the cars, got down there and came back. As we came back at midnight, wherever it was, you know, because you think you're invisible, we had a good few, about six or seven pints, because it was a bit stir-crazy in the World Cup yeah. prior to the first game. Brian Robson's gone up to Gaza's room, tried to lift his bed, and as he's lifted his bed, the bed that Gaza's on, Gaza fell out of bed, the bed slid along the tile floor and took his right toenail half off. Oh, yeah. His, 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 his right foot, his, his big toenail. Yeah. Gaza says, uh, stick it in the bidet. So Brian Pop puts it in the bidet, 
And Gaza turns on the hot tap, which made it even worse. <laughs> so then the doctors have to be called. We're, we're all asleep, oblivious. So anyway, the next step, next morning, half eight, gone out on the door, team meeting, team meeting. And I'm like, oh, we've been rumbled. We've been rumbled here because you've got a bit of a thick head. So we go around, team meeting. And Bobby went right through us. He went right through us. You have wrecked your chances. The captain of your country could be out of the World Cup. How am I going to explain that to the, to the press? He says, I'm going to go in the room next door and I want you all to come through in that room. He said, all come through, those that were out. He says, and apologise to me and apologise to your country. So I said, oh, right. So, so I said to Woody, come on, Woody, we're going. He says, I'm not going. I said, why are you not going? He says, he says, all right for you. He says, you've had an international career. Mine could be over. He said, I'm not had one yet. Mark, man. So, so you think, I've got, so I'm going to go through. So I went through to the next door. And I had a bit of a beard at the time because I, I think I was on the verge of not playing and all that sort of thing in the World Cup, 1990. So because Mark Wright was there and Des Walker was yeah. there, and so it was yeah. a really good squad. Yeah. So uh, I go through, and then Chrissy Waddle standing behind Bobby Robson with Gaza. Bobby Robson sat down because they've been in first, and they've obviously sat. So he went, Bobby Robson went through me. I knew it would be you. You're always a ringleader. You've got this problem with alcohol, and that. so he went through me. And I says, I'm really sorry, Gaffer, and that sort of thing, and humbly apologised, which I did, and all that sort of thing. And then Gaz is behind the gaffer and he's making faces at me. I'm getting angry and, I, and, I, and he's being some stupid face so I start laughing. And that made Bobby worse because it's, it's not a funny thing. It's no laughing matter, but you and all this way. So anyway, he finished it off. He said, and what he, his finishing line was, and another thing, Butcher, you're ugly. <laughs> of course, Gaz and Christy Waddle just burst out laughing. And he says, right now, go, clear off, and bring the next ones in. And I don't know who else, who else came. I went, I, Gaza went out before me, and I've chased Gaza around the pool. <laughs> Only Bobby could go off. Only Bobby did that. There was an expletive there, so I didn't put it in. And you all beep, beep, ugly. <laughs> but he used to, but he was so funny. Some of the things he used to say would just, just make you laugh. He didn't deliberately be funny, but sometimes the, he used to say the funniest things, and we'd be, we'd be rolling around laughing. And, oh, that's what sort of what was it with him in names? How on earth? You know, because he was a bright, intelligent, curious man. All, I mean, look, look, look what the heck he did in having gone abroad and won trophies in Portugal, Holland, yeah. Spain. But he couldn't get names. Well, what, did that not seem a bit strange? The famous one no, is that not. he's, he's, he's yeah. manager of England. In the lift. Brian's yeah. captain of England. Bobby comes down and... Morning, Bobby. <laughs> no, morning, morning, Brian. Morning. No, morning, Bobby. Morning, Bobby, and Brian's Brian like, no, no boss. Yeah. <laughs> that's Brian, you're yeah, Bobby. That's true. Because he used to. There's another story about him in the World Cup in 1986. We went to Colorado Springs for high altitude training, mm-hmm. the Air Force Academy uh, base, and that sort of thing, Top Gun base. So we were there and having, having a great time. Fantastic facility. He comes along. He says, uh, "I forgot my boots. Everybody got size nine boots that they spare ones." So Glenola said, "Yeah, I've got a brand new pair, Bobby." Boom, I think Adidas, I think they went through him and he caught it. So we did a two hour session, which we were doing then to acclimatize for, for Mexico. And Bobby comes back in, he goes, he says, he threw, threw it back at Glenn, he says, they're never nine. He says, that's a number upside down, it should be six. She says, you're joking, they're brand new. He says, I know, but my feet, you're killing me. So Glenn has a look, and in, in the, because they're brand new boots, in the boots, it's still the paper. <laughs> and it, it then the whole train, Bobby had read about the whole training session with a paper in the boots. It was sensational. I mean, they're legendary tales, but the players love him more for it because at the end of the day, he doesn't mean to be funny. And he's, but he said some of the things he said and did, you honestly are priceless. They really were. But that bonded you towards him even more because it was like, you know, there but for the grace of God go I sort of thing. Sometimes you say, and he used to have his sayings. 
my saying is to ask you for your saying. What's your saying, Butcher? What's your saying, um, whoever it was? You know, what's your saying? That, you know, your saying was for the trip. Mine was if you can't win the first header, win the second header. You know, if you can't win the first header, win the second header in both boxes because it sticks with you. And I think he's, one of the players, I think it was um, to Alvin Martin, I think it was, or someone, says, if you're in possession, you can be out of position. But if you're out of possession, you must be in position. If you're, out of pos- if you're in possession, you, you can, can be, be out, out of position. position. Therefore, you move. Yeah. But if you're out of possession, you must be in position. <laughs> but and it, because it, 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 I think it was, uh, it was either Terry Fennick or Alvin Martin. So, he, uh, yeah, got this, got this. And he would try and say it to be clever. And I, honestly, he must have been 10 minutes trying to get it right. And the players are rolling the road, they're laughing. But I've known this as a manager. Sometimes if you take the mickey out of yourself or you do something wrong and yeah. the players laugh at you, yeah. it can actually have a good effect because the players they don't think you're stupid, but they actually, they actually it's, it's humorous and it's funny. And they, they talk about it and it's a laugh. It's not, it's not derogatory or anything else like that. It doesn't demean you. But it's quite funny because the, the gaffer's fallible. He's not, you know, perfect. You know, it's, it's funny. But he takes the mickey out of himself because he, he says, like, ah, he says, we'll leave that one. We'll go to someone else. That's it. He, was, he did that exasperated thing and it didn't matter to me. Never, he would, I've never seen him embarrassed by anything. And if something, if he made a muddle or something, he just moved on with a laugh. But and he joke. always, if he's, he should say, because he used to get, ma- he got a massive stick in 1990 because he, he was going to leave and all that. It wasn't, his contract yeah. was going to be renewed and all that sort of Yeah. So he's going to PSV. So he said, he said well, I'm not going to speak to them. I'm going to give him five minutes of the time. That's it. I can't stand them. I want to speak to them. That's it. 35 minutes later, he's still there. And he's, he still hasn't finished. Once he got talking and once he got going, he would, he would, he would talk. Because he loved talking about football. That's, that's how we, we did. That's how we started. Because, you know, I, I, you make me laugh. And you make me feel the affection I had for him in the little time I knew of him. But, so I'm jealous of all the time you had with him. But in the little time I had with him, you know, I said, Joe, nobody. I got more about coming down to England. That's, that's his phrase about possession. It was his phrase to me, no matter when I saw him, it was in the phone, I'm very busy. I, I don't have yeah. time for you. I, I can't speak long. And it would be like, he'd be sitting doing nothing or he would be busy, but it was always like, I'm very busy, all right. And two hours later, we'd still be talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, could, you possibly couldn't get rid of him if you, if you were on football. And it culminated in, when he won the cup with Barcelona in the Bernabeu in Madrid Stadium against Betis, and I really... So a colossal game, 3-2, I think it was, after extra time. So the camp now, him, the Barca, 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 gets played in the Bernabeu because that's where the cup final is. He's already known for a couple of months that they've cheated and lied to him, Barcelona, and that Van Hal's going to take over and he's going to move upstairs and he's, he's hurt. But he goes to the victory, on the Saturday night at the game, he says to me, ah, yeah, I'll give you an interview, no problem at all. I say, tomorrow, tomorrow, back in Barcelona, Sunday, OK, so, so I phone him up, Breakfast time, oh no, I'm, I'm quite busy. Okay. I've got to do this first, phone me at lunchtime, phone me at lunchtime. Well, we're on the open top bus now and I can't do it. See you tonight at the team hotel on the Sunday night at the dinner. Okay, super. So we finally, I'm worried because I trust him. I don't, I'm not, and it's a big interview because the British manager's won the cup in Spain. He's also won the Cup Winners Cup and he's won the Super Cup. And you know he's going to be bumped and it's unfair. Celtic have made him a big offer, but nobody's sure what's happening. And he sits down. And he gives me an hour conversation in the Ray Juan Carlos Hotel when all of the club, all the top brass and the sponsors and the players are up in the dining hall. We're down in the reception and he started giving me this interview and it's very good. And yes, Celtic offered me the manager's job and this is why I'm taking it. And I'm going to take their money. They've stiffed me, they've, they've bumped me out. So I'm going to become the most expensive scout in world football and I'm going to live on their expense. And the president's angry because they want to start and they send his assistant down. They send just a young Jose Mourinho down. 
boss, boss, you have to come out, the president. Let the president wait. They've sacked me. I'm talking to my friend. We'll finish the interview. And he deliberately keeps talking for another half hour now. I mean, imagine the impact on somebody like me, mm-hmm. for somebody like that to do, to do that for you. It was fun. And when he came back and he talked to me about the power of going back to Newcastle, I, I could see when we exchanged a text, I asked you what was it about him, and you talked about the inspirational values and how people would do anything for him. I found him just an extraordinary man. What he also did as well, he got the, he got the wives and girlfriends involved with the, with, the, with the England team when it came to the tournaments. Nothing was done in 82 because... Uh, it was England hadn't been to a World Cup for some state for some time, so there, there was nothing organised for the wives in, in Spain. So my wife came out, Rita came out with my son Christo, who was only 12 weeks old. Gosh. And he came out, and um, I think, um, what was it, who else was uh, Kenny Sanson's wife, Graham Brooks's wife, Glenn Hoddle's wife, they all came out as well. Mm-hmm. So there was a nice little core of wives there. Yep. Um, and then we moved on to Madrid for the second phase and all that sort of thing. So uh, we did it off our own back and paid for it and all that sort of thing. The players paid for it themselves. 86. When we went out to Mexico, we went to the Air Force Academy before. The wives came out there. Gosh. Before we went to Mexico. We then flew up to Canada, played a game, then, then down for the World Cup. So the wives come together before, and in 1990 as well. So he, he made, it, it made it a really special thing. So he always was a, fam- you know, a family man. He wanted you to feel happy and relaxed. He had your fun with the wives, and we'd have time off as well, and he was very relaxed. But not when it came to actually in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And I remember a story when, uh, in 1990, we just we just beaten uh, Cameroon. We luckily beaten Cameroon 3-2, but whatever it was, we got through. And, and we, we didn't know the impact of the World Cup back home because you, you're insulated and away from things yeah. over there. So we're sitting by the pool in, in uh, Sorrento, I think it was, you know, on the, on the was it Amalfi Coast or whatever. It was a beautiful place. Yeah. So we're sitting by the pool and listening to my hypnotherapy tapes and all this sort of thing, and, and Bobby comes along and says, sit down beside me. And I said, uh, it's the night before, great night, how are the boys? And I said, oh, they're fine, Gaffer, they're really good. Um, everything's going well. And he said, I said, look, I've got to speak to you about the wives coming out. Yeah, we'll get that sorted out, no problems at all. Uh, he, says, um, he says, but, you know, what, what do the players think about, you know, playing, playing against the, the Germans and playing this on that? I said, well, fine, boss. I went through, that, I went through a lot, about a five or ten minute conversation, you know, talk. And I looked round and he's, he's fell asleep and he's snoring. He's snoring away. And I thought... <laughs> He's asked my opinion, and he's just gone to sleep. So I thought, I knew I was boring, but not that boring. So I thought, right, you're going to get this. So I, I put my headphones on. So I went up to the, to the side of the pool, because we were up by the side of the pool, and I jumped right in the water near him and soaked him and woke him up. I thought, that'll teach if he fall asleep on my, on my conversation. But it was funny. And that, right at the end God of the tournament, him, obviously with a third and fourth place playoff in Bari. You captain by now because Robson's injured. Yeah, I'm captain for the semi-final, but yeah. I didn't play in the third and fourth place because my knees were, when yeah. he was bad, needed a knee operation. So after the game, we, everybody, everybody said, right, we're going uh, to get the gaffer in the pool, throw him in the pool. He, he always had the suit on, you know, the, mm. the England suit, fantastic. He was very proud of that. Yeah. So we got him as a gift as well, a presentation, the last game as England manager, third and fourth place playoff. You know, the boys just want to say a big thank you. Or well, the wives are there around the, around the pool in the evening. Drink was flowing and everyone like that. So I think, so he says, right, I'm going to, I says to the players, I'm going to grab the gaffer and then we're both of us going to go in the pool. So I'd sacrifice him to go in the pool. But I want, you know, that'd be a great thing. Okay, fine. So then I've grabbed him on the, on the, on the command. I've grabbed him. And as I've, as I've gone towards the pool, someone's pushed me and, and it's, a big, it's a big scrum so then to push the gaffer in. As I'm going towards, heading towards the pool, I've got the gaffer in my arms, 
And the next thing I see is a diving board, the little diving of the springboard, and we're heading towards that. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And the gaffer, Bobby Robson's head just must have missed it by an inch. I thought, I'm going to kill the England manager as I was going to the pool. I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. Oh, boom. And as I came up, I thought, I'm going to see him floating on the surface. Is he alive? Not a great career move. No, not good at all. And, but luckily, we just, just missed it. I was like, I was really close. But yeah, he, but he took it really well. He loved like, things like that with the players as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You touched on this, you had, a, you had a very good left foot. Yeah, I, well, I could swing it, yeah, I could get across in the box. But no, but you could also, what I liked as well was that you could, you could from centre half, you could pass. Yeah, you know, like left, a good range left. of pass, yeah. yeah. I was always told, Bobby Ferguson always told me that the, the switch of play from left to right, yeah. 60, 70 yard raking diagonals across the other side, was, that was a killer ball, that was great. I'm not sure if you get the chance to watch it, but the guy who reminds me of you is PK. Yeah. Because PK's, if you go back and watch the tapes of the 2010 World Cup and they win, PK's change of play, where instead of, just like you said about Wilkins, um, because both Xavi and Iniesta, who were the stars of that 2010 World Cup winning team, could drop back and they could both pass a little bit. <laughs> but PK would very often go left to right, or indeed right to left, and pick out Villa. And that, that movement of, if they've, if they've been predominantly the offense, the, the, the team that you're playing against, are predominantly on one side of the pitch, that raking ball, particularly to a player who can then cut in into open space rather than go down the, the wing, it changes marking schemes completely. Mm. And I remember right from the start that you, you could do that. Well, it was the way the team played and the possession that we had. Arnold Murin used to come inside and that gave me space to move on the outside. Your width always comes, if you're playing a diamond system, the width always comes from your fullbacks. So it was it was good space for me to drive into, and that would you call that a wing back well, in the modern? Yeah, or yeah not? in a way because Walkie would you got insurance because you've got the, a, a defensive midfield player plus the opposite fullback. You can so, drop in. Yeah, so you've you've got safety at the back, so you could go, and if you went, other people covered him for you. Arnold would cover for me at left back and things like this. So plus I had Kevin Beattie there. I want to ask you was, about him. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal, my favourite player ever. He was unbelievable, unbelievable. He was the, we call him the monster. He was, um, he was like Popeye. This is not. This is this is traditionally not a visual medium. Terry's been very animated during the conversation and enjoyed it. And if it's not impertinent, even saying Kevin Beatty brought a huge smile to yeah. his mouth and to his eyes yeah. um, in affection. When we were travelling in the train to come and meet you, I was saying that as I was growing up, I didn't. I maybe still don't have an educated eye, but I didn't have an educated enough eye. To, to understand what I always heard people saying about two players in particular who I think have been underappreciated latterly Colin Bell was one yeah. but BT was the other and I, was, I always remember hearing people or reading people saying about BT in those days that he was extraordinary and Neil remembers reading in Bobby's book that I think Bobby used the phrase that BT was the, the best England player he'd ever seen yeah. now yeah. you get used to people saying Moore or Charlton or Edwards 
Well, I think Bobby, for me, for me, Bobby Moore is the best England player I've ever seen because he's a captain of the country who lifted the World Cup. You'll never, ever take that away from Okay, me. but then you're also talking about the iconography and the moment and the lifting but, but, the cup. Kevin didn't play many times for England because, because of injuries. And in a way, the, the injuries helped my career because Kevin had to retire. Tell us about that, him. I, I was able to get there. Explain B, what, what was special. He was a the lovable guy. He was a bit like, was a bit like Gaza. Darth is a brush. He's a, you know, and he's, he's a little bit... It, it beats the life and soul of the party. I mean, we, we went to... When I was in the youth team in Ipswich in 87... Not 87. In 77, um, we went to Loretta Mar on a, a, for a tournament, played against Barcelona, lost in the final to Barcelona. And Kevin was injured, but he came along as a sort of chaperone for the boys, which is probably the worst chaperone Bobby could ever imagine. But he's coming up and we used to go out for nights out. But he was, on a, he was in the next room to us. Me and Russ were in the room, in the hotel, and he was in the next room to us on his own. And he hated being on his own. He was quite insecure, beat. He liked company. Um, he liked being with the boys and that sort of thing. So he used to come and stay in our room, and then all we go back to his room and things like this. But we'd always, the three of us would stay in the room together. But one day, he decided to go back to his room. He's drinking in our room. We'd had a good few drinks. And he decided to go back to his room. But he didn't go through the door, which any normal person would do. He decided to go from window to window. And we're about three floors up. So we're about 50, 60 feet above the ground. Yeah. And Beat decides, Kevin Beat decides, I'm going to go jump on that window lady there, which was only about six inches wide to, to jump. And we, we, we couldn't stop him. We could not stop him at all because he's a strong guy. He'd, he'd pin us against the wall. And he, he did it. He jumped. And we were the most relieved people so in the world. He jumped from it window wasn't to window. Stretching a leg. No. It, it was a jump. It was a jump. Whoa. But Beat's jump. Jumping prowess was phenomenal. He, he, was, he was easily the best at the club. You know, that standing, you have a yeah. standing start. Yeah. You, you stand against the wall, put your arm yeah. up as far as you can, they mark it, and then from a standing start, you jump up and they mark it where you touch. His was by far the best leap. He had a natural spring and explosion. To, and he, some, of the, some of the headers, he used the towering headers, he used to get up. His timing was phenomenal. But there's one story I tell about Beat. It was a competition to, to find out the, the fastest footballer. And it was, it was run somewhere where it was run, Newcastle somewhere else. Right? And all the clubs had to put forward a, a, their, their quickest runner. So Beat was easily our, our, our fastest guy. So we went up there. So we all thought, he's gonna, it's a certainty to win this. So then the news came back that he was third. We were like, wow, there must be someone really quick people. But the people that won it, we're like, well, Kevin's far quicker than them. What happened in the race was, was Beat got his kit and took his kit up there and got onto the track and that sort of thing. As he's running... He hadn't, on his, underneath his shorts, he didn't have a slip on or underpants or jockstrap. <laughs> so halfway down the track, you can guess what happens. He's waving at people. He's waving at people. Yeah. And there's something appears from his shorts that shouldn't appear from his shorts. So he's trying to tuck it back in and then running another 10 yards and trying to tuck it back in. He still finishes third. So he finishes third. <laughs> so, so, but there's only Kevin Beattie would go up there without the right gear. But he's, he was such a, he's such a lovable guy. I remember being a young boy at Ipswich in 70, 77, 76, 77, and I was sweeping the dress rooms up because I was uh, like, just doing the jobs after the game. And John Osborne was the goalkeeper for West Brom. And he was sitting in the dressing room having a cigarette, sitting there with his legs crossed. Well, the others had gone out. And I said, is it okay to come in? He said, yeah, come on in, son. So I'm sweeping away. And he's sitting there. He says, you know, son, what do you think of the game? I says, uh, well, great win for us. And I sort of think he says, yeah. He says, he says, what about Beatty's goal from the free kick? And he's, he struck one in from 25 yards that nearly took the net off. He struck it that hard. He says, you know the best thing I ever did today? 
sucking away on his fag. And I says, what was that, John? He says, uh, I got out of the way of BT's free kick. He says, because if I had put up my hand to that, he says, he would have broken my arm. He said, so that was the best thing I ever did today. Here's to beats. I, I wondered, I was joking on the way down, that maybe your love of Scotland began with ACDC. <laughs> given that they are a Scottish rock band, not an Australian rock band. Oh, yeah, they're very true. The Youngs count as, as, yeah, yeah, as well. Scots. But um, did you have any qualms at all about coming up to Scotland? And your first game might have been against Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich, yeah, lost 2-0 at home, yeah. But you came out... 36,000, yeah. The crowd were kind of calling you out first, or you, you were not paraded, but you came out as the big signing. Or what, what was that day like? Well, it was a great day. We lost 2-0 midweek, and then we, we played Hibs on the following Saturday, which... It's another story, but... Hardly remember that game. What happened in that uh, game? I can't remember that game. <laughs> but I'd gone down the previous week to Spurs, to, to Tottenham, and it was the uh, Paul Miller testimonial game uh, at White Hart Lane. And um, 10,000 Rangers fans at the game. I didn't play, i just signed. So there was 10,000 Rangers, and, it was, and they were singing my name and all that, and I'm thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. Well, unbelievable. Was it already a different world from that switch? I mean, that's um, a stupid question, but I'd like to know. In a way, but I, I travelled down from Ipswich to, to Spurs and then met up with the boys and that and then sort of thing and then went back to Ipswich and then flew up that week. Just meeting Sunez was just immense. You know, even now, you see him on TV now, you think, wow, he's got something about him. It's about a hundred times more impressive when you actually meet him, and particularly then in 86. It was... It is quite remarkable. It was... There's... What can you say? There's not, there aren't not many people in, in football that you'd meet that you'd actually say, Wow. You're allowed to laugh at me, but I said, I said to the lads as we were going down to, to meet him a couple of months ago for an interview, for this interview, I said to him, you know, he could have played Bond. Do you know what I mean? Oh, easy. He's got that, yeah. that elegant charisma and a certain amount of menace. He reminds me of Connery. Yeah. And there is, there's an elegance, but there's a ferocity too. Yeah. He's a, and he's a different man in person than he might appear on the pitch, but it's a hell of a... It's a hell of a combination. He's got, I don't know what he's got going for him, but it's he's, oh, charismatic. He's, oh, he's unbelievable. He, when he took me up to Glasgow to talk first before we signed, and then when he's, you know, he showed me Ibrox and he showed me the, the bit of Glasgow and things like this, and he was very good. It was a lovely sunny day, which was quite worked in his favour because it was not normally in the summer in Scotland. <laughs> but he was, you know, I'm going to sign, I'm going to sign for Graham Sinnett. You know, it's like Chris Woods had already signed, mm-hmm. Colin West Colin had already West, signed, yeah. so I was, I was the third one. And um, there was no other, no other club came in for me. It was a fleeting interest from David Pleat at Spurs. But it, was, it just felt right. It really did feel right. But it was, you could sense straight away it was completely different, you know, to Ipswich. Really, I mean, you're talking big time. I mean, it's just immense. It's huge. People don't under, really understand the size of the club and the, even now where the club is. But then it was just immense. It was just immense. But to sign for Sunet, and then you meet David Holmes, who was the chief executive. And he was class as well, really was. And that, that was the thing about Sunes and Rangers was class, absolute class. And he felt, well, I'm coming to a really big club here. And it's, it just felt a natural progression, which it was. It's a big club, but it didn't, what it didn't have was a proper training ground. Well, it had the Albion, which was, no. a, which was a car park across the road. That was good, by the way. That, that was really good. And that's the phrase I learned in Scotland, by the way. <laughs> when you say that after every sentence, by the way. <laughs> But we used to we used to go, we used to go and uh, we used to go across to the Albion training ground, walk across. Sometimes we used cherry, to carry the gold. Cherry, cherry, cherry. You have to tell people who haven't experienced the Albion what the Albion is. Well, the Albion was because corrugated iron fence all the way around the outside. Yeah. There's this big block of flats. Yeah. Two, I think two blocks of the flats were there, and it was a rough area. <laughs> you know, that, that very rough area. 
So where the, yeah, there was a, a called a blaze pitch. It was like a, a cinder pitch. Yeah. And then they had a grass pitch. And we always trained on that. It was one where it was still a big bit of area away from the grass pitch. So it could probably take nearly three pitches of this Albion car park. Well, it was now a car park, the Albion training ground. And in a way, it was quite radical for a club to have that. But whenever the ball went, if you kicked the ball and it was some keeper would save it or you'd have a shot and it would go over the bar, you had to run quickly to go and get the ball back. Because the, the, the kids from their, from their flats <laughs> used to burrow underneath a corrugated fence and steal the balls. <laughs> so you had, to, you had to run quick because you could, they were like rabbits. They'd appear out of the, out of the fences. <laughs> and that's, that's probably why, probably why <laughs> my speed actually picked up at Rangers because I had to go get the ball back because my shots kept going over the bar. And then uh, after the training session, we all had to carry the goals back across because they would come on and saw them up, saw them up for scrap. <laughs> But we did that. Bayern Munich, Barcelona, eat your heart out. I know, but that was the way it was. They were looking for a training ground and obviously found Murray Park, but they were always looking for somewhere to go. We played at like cricket grounds and rugby pitches. I'm, I'm not quite ready to leave the Albion yet. How were the training games decided? Was there any geographical element? Well, it was, yeah. It was, it was, it was always on a Friday. Mm-hmm. We, we, I mean, sometimes you play young v old. But uh, if, when we first went there, it was... Scotland against the rest of the world. And then because Graham then introduced over the next couple of years so many English players, it then became England against the rest of the world. And Graham Sinness would always play on the English side. So I think he thought he was English. He'd always play on the English whoa, side. Whoa, whoa. Well, Graham, if you're listening, I want to distance myself from that. That was Terry that said it. That's nothing to do with me. Okay, we can go on now. I think distance is quite good from Graham. <laughs> but it, and then we'd, we'd play. But it was fierce. It was the fiercest thing. It was fiercer than the game the next day on the Saturday. It was unbelievable. And but the thing about Graham was because it was because it was quite good for me from our point of view because he'd always play till England won because he wanted to win. <laughs> and, he, and he would he would top you in training as well. Not not us because we were teammates. <laughs> he would, the Scottish players he would top he would top them as well. He would he wouldn't hold back on tackles and so like And he could top if he wanted to, you could do. So you would pick up little knocks and niggles on a Saturday, but you wouldn't say anything if you were the opposition. But the stick he used to get we would got a massive stick if England lost if England lost but the thing about it was what I used to do is when I went away with England I'd pinch one of these wet tops you know the cagoules I call them in Scotland that's a wet top with the England crest on with the three lines on and I'd wear it for training all the time <laughs> and that, David Cooper used to rile him up he used to slaughter me <laughs> Ali McCoy Steve Durant they, 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 oh, they go bananas I, I get a gentle impression that none of that <laughs> They put you off your stage. You quite enjoyed that. No, but I used to write for the Rangers News as well. I had a column in the Rangers News. And Stephen Halliday, who was a great Scottish journalist, he used to, he used to, he used to sort of go to it, so we'd, we'd write it. And I used to have a, 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 my awards every week, and they were normally based on the Friday training sessions, England versus the rest of the world. It was the MVP, the best player, the worst player, the best goal, the worst miss, and the moaner of the week. So I had five awards. And I, it, because the Rangers News used to come out on a, as a in, you know, internal, but you'd go on sale to the public, it used to come out. Uh, on a Wednesday, and then the boys would read it on the Thursday. And I used to get, I, used to, I had to hide because the boys would give me pelters because I'd, I'd slaughter the players and that sort of thing in the paper and all that sort of thing. And I always put David Cooper as the moaner of the week, call him Albert Tatlock, because <laughs> he used to moan like mad. Yeah. He used to call me Lurch. You rang, he used to say all the time. <laughs> what are you saying, you rang? All that sort of thing. Like, unbelievable. That banter was the best. And I, my first, one of the first training sessions, I saw David Cooper. I'd heard about him and played against him for, for Scotland and England. And um, I went to David Cooper and I said, David, I said, uh, uh, that's, that's before I'd signed. I did a training, I had a training session before I'd signed. And I said, Dave, if I join Rangers, will we win the league this year? He went, were you on board, big man? No problems. 
And it's ironic that the goal that won the league for us that year was up at Aberdeen. Thanks for that. Against Jim Layton. Right. Ironic's not the word I would use. Who never moved. And I remember looking at David Cooper for the free kick and, and uh, we made eye contact. It's one of the special moments. That's we made eye contact and I just ran. That's perfect. And he, he knew exactly That's where to put it. And he put it right on the button. And I, all I had to do was make contact. And it was, we, we drew the game 1-1. Sunes was sent off ironically again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, we, but that was a good trip home. That was that night. I would have, that doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> but I do, I do admire that because football should produce. It's not too poncy, poetic moments where he, he's promised you with you you'll do it, and he gives you the, yeah. the winning goal. That, that ain't bad. What did Davy Cooper have that that made him such a special footballer? He had uh, a fantastic ability first and foremost. The sweetest left foot you'd ever see. It was unbelievable. He would. But what Davy used to do is, if you're under a bit of pressure, you give the ball to Davy. He'd take the ball out for a walk. You know, he'd take it away for a run, he'd take it to a corner, take two or three people on, and he'd relieve the, the pressure, but also take you up the pitch. But he could deliver a cross and a ball into the box with pinpoint accuracy, free kicks, corners, anything he wanted. But he's, he's, he'd, he'd take the mickey out of himself, but he'd moan like mad right now. Mm. But he would, he would take the mickey out of himself, so he had a, a good humility about him as well. But he was a team player. He could go past people as well. I mean, yeah, I remember he, 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 wasn't he wasn't lightning quick. No, but he was jinky. John Roberts. He was jinky. Look, ah. you know, like Scottish wingers, you know, he was jinky. We John Robertson, for example, yeah. wasn't massively no. quick in a sprint sense in the Kevin Beattie sense. John Robertson is a great You, you uh, couldn't get near him. No, he right-footed, played on the left wing, just to come inside. We've used up an, an awful lot of your time, and it's been as wonderfully engaging and fun as I expected it to be before we finish I want to know a little bit more about the characters you met at Rangers in your time when you were winning trophies and when it was a new country to you and, and a new kind of culture I suppose from, from Ipswich what, what was it like being in a dressing room or playing with and winning with Duran and, and McCoyst and with Walter Smith as soon as his assistant what, what was the experience like? Oh it was it was phenomenal experience I mean um, the number of uh, supporters clubs that Rangers has in Scotland and throughout the world is phenomenal and we had to say uh, getting towards the end of the season and they'd vote for the players of the year you'd be playing on a Saturday and you'd be going out to supporters clubs in the evening on a Saturday but you, I would do two or th- probably three supporters clubs go to one have a meal at one go to another one and then go to another one and the number of, in those days they didn't have the phones and, and, and they had cameras but with the uh, flash bulbs yeah. and it, your eyes were standing out on stilts at the end of the <laughs> night and things like this but you went out to them and therefore you had an affinity with the fans by mm-hmm. doing that all the sports clubs would come to you at one o'clock before a three o'clock kickoff. Mm-hmm. you'd have your pre-match meal you weren't getting the team talk till quarter to one and you'd get your award then at one o'clock so you'd meet two or three supporters clubs then so you're always meeting people and you, know, you always felt part of the people as well mm-hmm. nowadays that, that isn't the case but you, there was such a responsibility when you played for Rangers as well that you wanted to give the fans as much success as you possibly could but being with some of the players in, in, the, in the team was just phenomenal. We used to, when things weren't going well, you'd, you'd know that Alan McCoyce would pop up with a goal. Yeah. He'd miss hit the shot and it would fly off a defender's backside and go in, but he would always do it. You know, he'd, he'd always come up with well, up, up trumps. David Cooper would be the same, Robert Flack who used to play up front with us and things like this. But, you know, you look at so many characters in the team, Jimmy Nicol at right back, Graham Roberts, Richard Goff. Uh, Woodsy in goal. You know, we had some great experiences. We, you know, we went away to to Israel and we, uh, quite a few times with Rangers post season. We went away to little places, but sometimes go away to to Glen Eagle. Sometimes go away to the old Course Hotel in St Andrews. They take us away for a, for a few nights, and it was great fun just being with them. And it, you really do miss those days because they were happy, happy days. You know, sometimes you 
you had to get used to playing for a big club because of the responsibility and the pressure that was on you. But it was a real pleasure to play for that, for that football club. And I remember leaving the football club in 1990 to go to Coventry to become player manager. And Willie Waddle was the last person to say anything to me as I left. And he, he just, Willie Waddle's an absolute yeah. legend at Ibrox. Uh, ex-manager, fantastic, fantastic guy who's no, no longer with us. He just shook my hand and just thanked me very much for what I've given to Rangers Football Club. And I thought, hey, hang on, he's telling me thanks very much for what I've given. I should be thanking him as well for what he gave to Rangers Football Club in the past because, you know, an absolute legend there. So it was, that was a really nice touch when I, when I left. And leaving Rangers was, was heartbreaking, really, but obviously there was fresh challenge for me uh, at Coventry. It, it was at Coventry, but it, I think it was very nearly you instead of Steve Bruce at Old Trafford. Well, yeah, but I was, I was tapped up for three years at Ipswich for Old Trafford and Brian Robson used to speak to me at England uh, get-together and actually after the quarter-final hand of God game, and I thank you very much for not mentioning Maradona at all doing this thing. Ron Atkinson, who was the manager mentioned that, was in the hotel with Brian Robson and we were talking about a possible move or what you want to do and all that sort of thing. I nearly had a place picked to live and nearly had a school for my kids and all that sort of thing, but such as the, the three-year interest. It, it never happened, but there you are. The, the way to finish, I want to finish, is that... Um, in your playing time, and subsequently, as I said, when, when I got to know you a little bit in Casablanca, which was Glen Hoddle's yeah. training base, from La, or training games from La Manga, before going to the World Cup in, in, in 98. You know, England has meant a lot to you, but you've, you've played with and watched legions of exceptional international footballers with England, and you've taken them as close as... OK, Mexico would be up there too to the 1966 moment with Bobby Moore because I would contend that if you beat Germany in the semi-final we, we you're going to beat Argentina yeah. it was a very poor niggly unfit but they, horrible they Argentina had a lot of men suspended and a lot of injuries as well it, it, the final was very we, winnable we knew our, because Argentina had put out Italy the host the night before that we played so we knew that we ever won and Germany knew as well it was the final yeah. effectively that game was the best I think the, probably the, one of the best games England have played in that, in that game in the semi-final yeah. you know, I even had a back heel which came off I couldn't believe it I should have retired then <laughs> well, in fact I did <laughs> but you were playing a five man I mean yeah. I, I, that made a big difference did it the change to bring yeah. Mark right yeah. technically in football terms yeah it was good what it, happened? it was good but Bobby and Don, Don Howe I always thought about doing this we never did, did it a lot in games prior to the World Cup but he talked about it we worked at it in fact, some of the games in training matches we played with the three at the back and with, obviously with the five with the wing-backs, we were awful, we were poor. Yet, he still went with it. And, it, and once again, like with Bobby's teams, the players knew the jobs, knew what they had to do, and they made it work. The three being you, Des Walker... I was on the left. Mark Wright. Mark Wright was a sweeper. Yep. Des Walker was the other marker. Paul Parker right back. Paul Parker right back. Stuart Pearce left Pierce wing left. I mean, we had some phen- phenomenal characters in that team and captains of teams as well, you know, at that time. You know, Lineker and Beardsley and Waddle, you know, mentioned Gazza and David Platt, things like this. And then you came through. They didn't start the competition, Gazza and Platty, but they came into it. And then by the end of the tournament, were first team regulars. So it was a fantastic World Cup for them. But we had some great characters and some great, can I say, leaders in that team that were strong. We lost John Barnes, we lost, we lost Brian Robson, yet still managed to cope and get to the semi final. This has been exceptional. <laughs> it's a good reflection. Just tell the, tell the listeners, wake up now. Now's your time. Uh, no, no <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to throw in the swimming pool and miss the day by, 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 by an inch. So we've nearly killed Bobby Robson. Yeah. We've, uh, Beach has almost fallen to his um, a yeah. grisly end. Yeah. What it feels like to me, Terry, honestly, is, I hope anyway, a good reflection 
of a brilliant footballing life, a life that's been led with a lot of colour and passion and a sense of fun. And I hope that what we've talked about is also, apart from your achievement side and your leadership side, the things that were obvious to people who watched, is your talent and ability and the, and the great teams that you played in in England and in Scotland too. And I want to finish just by saying that this is what the big interview is about, talking to great football men about great football lives. So it's, it's been well, I think, an well, honour. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. I think we have to say is that luck plays a big part as well in getting the opportunity and getting the chance because there's so many players that don't make it. But when you do get that opportunity and that chance, you've got to take it. But you've also got to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, nice. My best present I ever had as a boy at Christmas was a leather football. You know, that's how old I am, a leather football. But any kind of football nowadays... That's the best present you can give a boy these days, and a girl as well. Because I used to sleep with that football. Mm. I'd take it everywhere, dribble it, play one-twos against the walls, and things like this, and, and keep it. Playgrounds, that's my ball, my game, my team, all that sort of thing. Uh, if, if, one of the best things you can ever give a young boy now, or a young girl, is a football. Because and just say, there we are. Because for me, that's, that's what the game's all about. Keeping that ball, having that ball, yeah. and playing a game. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.